is the Aspiring Self Podcast, and I'm your host, Mark Stolo. Today, I'm talking with Joe Weston. Joe is the person you go to when you're trying to figure out how to transform confrontation into transformation. In a world increasingly polarized and anxious, Joe is a calming influence. He spent his career accompanying people through the process of understanding how to approach confrontation in a way that is mutually empowering. Joe and I talk about the difference between conflict and confrontation, why we often find ourselves in disputes, and what we can do to walk the confrontational path respectfully. Yeah, so I've been uh, looking forward to this conversation because I think that you're working in a space that's extremely important right now at a time where I think people are experiencing a certain level of internal conflict in their own lives, especially post-pandemic, which I think was very difficult for people. And we're also seeing quite a bit of polarized thinking, which we're going to talk a little bit about. And so that breeds a certain level of conflict. It seems like more and more there are warring tribes out there fighting for what is right, uh, what they believe to be just. And I want to spend some time talking about that. Tell people a little bit about you and how did you get into the space of uh, working with people around confrontation and conflict? Okay, that's a that's a great question. There's a lot, lot there. So I always start by saying I was born in New York City. <clears throat> and for me, I bring that up because for me, growing up in New York City, every day was a constant examination and confrontation and conflict that you had to basically navigate with so many people, had a, had a, the, the intimacy of, of, of just the subway, of, of just navigating that, the intimacy of strangers. Uh, grew up in a volatile uh, environment as a child. I always sit you know, some of the story is that my father spent some time in jail when I was 12 years old. So it was pretty intense. So in a sense, I was expected to fight. My dad was a fighter and, and yet I never really understood it. And even then, uh, I would always ask the question to myself, why is it, even though we know better, even though we're a relatively intelligent species and uh, we have as all the information we need at our fingertips, we can, I would say we can see close-up pictures of Pluto. We can see into the smallest of atoms. So technologically, we're pretty we're relatively advanced and we know better. Why is it, even though we know better, we still have arguments and fights and on a larger scale, crime and war and hunger? And oppression. And that's taken me through my whole life with all the work I've done. Uh, so I was able to manage my own reactivity and, and aggression and volatility in my from my childhood. Luckily, when I was a young adult, I did Tai Chi. And that really transformed a lot how I was thinking, was thinking, helped me understand mind-body connection. For the first time, I actually considered, hmm, how many of my thoughts are negative today? <laughs> And that, and that was the first time I did that and said, huh, I actually have choice over how I think. And the story continues where I ended up um, in the Netherlands. I was just going to go bum around Europe and I ended up there. I stayed for 18 years and that just opened a huge scope of me to learn about the world. And luckily I had the, you know, I was doing communication trainings, mostly in dealing with aggression. Also, at this point, along with uh, with Tai Chi, I was learning other martial arts and spiritual practices and Taoist, Taoism and Tibetan Buddhism. And that really informed me about understanding the deeper levels of human connection, about uh, human behavior. And in these trainings that I was doing and communication trainings around the world, I got the chance to really 
learn a lot about how different cultures work and what were the root causes of what was causing uh, conflict. And I decided to come back to the States, and that's when I developed the Respectful Confrontation work. And originally, it was a it, Respectful Confrontation is a method and a practice that provides someone with the skills and the courage to stand in your power, speak your truth, get your needs met in a way where you don't get harmed and other people don't get harmed. And it really comes from that dissonance that I would see that people could have the best intentions, even in spiritual communities, even people who are caregivers um, across the board, that on some level, they are committed to taking care of others, to trying to achieve our highest values. But oftentimes I would see in groups that when it came down, who was going to do the mailing that week or who was going to wash the toilets, suddenly it devolved into arguments and fights. And I wanted to try to bridge that. That why is it that when we're on our cushions, we can really be our best selves. And as soon as we get into our cars and start driving, we suddenly become <laughs> dot, 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 fill right. that in. Right. Yeah, I was just going to say, if we get into our cars and sometimes become incredibly unkind or very reactive. Yeah. Right. We go back to the, to the old patterns. And I wanted, it's always those bridges, right? What is the bridge between the parts of us that really aspire to our highest selves and the parts of us that are still working at a kind of like a low level where we, we're not even mindful or aware of what we're doing. Um, and try to bridge the gap of people who are, you know, spend time in retreat centers and things like that. How do we now take that and, and actually apply that? Yeah. It's in one of the things that you said when you were describing your experiences, the conversation around internal conflict the conflict between the different parts of ourselves, the conflicts that we might experience in the patterns of our thinking, the wrestling match we see between quote-unquote negative thoughts, positive thoughts. What have you noticed in terms of the quality of how people manage and mitigate their own interior conflict and how that translates into how they move in the world around conflict? Like, Is there a one-to-one -one relationship between those things? I think it's where it starts. I think that, yeah, it's, 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 it's fluid in a way, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of like dualistic in a way that they, one can't be without the other and they support each other and they, and they challenge each other. So one of the um, quotes that I, that, that I use and that has really inspired me and motivated the work of respectful confrontation was from the peace pilgrim, amazing woman from uh, in the 1950s, she basically said, uh, there, I'm going to walk around the United States until there's no more uh, war. So basically, she walked for the rest of her life. And, uh, and she wrote amazing treatises on peace. <clears throat> and one quote was, <clears throat> we're not going to solve our world wars and world problems until each one of us uh, recognizes and addresses our own personal psychological violence. So in a sense, it's a false assumption to think that if we solve the external problems that they're going to go away because that's not where the root cause is. At least that's my viewpoint. So to answer your question is that um, oftentimes with, with peace treaties and, and all of the things we're doing to try to shift things externally until we start looking within, that's where the root cause is because we're causing the wars. It's not like they're just randomly happening as an external phenomenon. They begin and end with us. And so therefore, if we want to get to the root cause of it, we have to look within and see what aspects within ourselves are still causing harm. Mm -hmm. 
and that it's okay to, you know, it, it, it's contradictory to say, you know, I, I, I'm a peace activist. I, at least I believe it's a contradiction to say I'm a peace activist, I'm, I'm advocating for peace, and yet I still harm my parents or my children or my, um, uh, with low-grade aggression, with passive aggression. And all of those aspects, until we deal with that, see um, peace around the world, in essence. Is, is it inevitable conflict? Is there a world where there is no conflict? Uh, well... I think well, friction is inevitable, right? So, so you know, it's a it's now we're talking about terms. I know in the conflict resolution world, they talk about good conflict and bad conflict. Uh, I, ref, I frame it differently, where I talk about there's conflict and there's confrontation, and in in essence, I use the words respectful confrontation for a specific reason because they seem like polar opposites, and by bringing them together, you create an alchemy. That's the way I see it, that there are people who are really wired for respectful, right? The caregivers, the peacemakers, the ones who make sure everyone's doing okay and don't rock the boat, don't get their needs met. Unfortunately, that's the, those are the good and the, and the challenging qualities. There are those who might be more wired towards confrontation where they're re it's really easy to speak their truth and, and get what they want, but that might be at the expense of the relationship or giving other people space who need more time to speak their truth. Um, but by bringing them together, you create an alchemical friction. And within that, that's where the emergence of new solutions can, can happen. So in a sense, friction has to be there. The whole universe is built on friction. The whole universe is built on what I call symmetrical flow, which is, a, which is a, a based on what I would say, receptive assertiveness and assertive receptivity. That we get into conflict when we are in a, either the aggression or the or the passivity um, loop, polar polarized loop, where we get stuck in either um, attacking or defending. And as long as we're in that, we're never going to. It's going to be a perpetual cycle. So to break that is to realize that I don't have to be aggressive. I can simply be assertive with a certain level of receptivity. And I don't have to be passive, I can be receptive with a certain level of assertiveness. And that brings us into the dance of life, I think, the dance of the universe. When you think of confrontation, you imagine, quote unquote, two people going at it, right? Get that sense of two highly vibrating people going at each other. But one of the things you said I thought was compelling is you can show up to a confrontation to our conflict with a quality of passivity in a way that itself is also nurturing attention. Speak to that a little bit because I think it's, or let's, let's unpack that a little bit and get into the nuance of that. So for example, someone who's constantly people-pleasing or foregoing all of their needs, we don't think of that person in some kind of state of conflict or potentially a source of confrontation. How, how is that possible where someone is showing up with, you know, I'll do anything for you, and yeah. somehow that's nurturing tension. It's what I call chronic niceness, that we all suffer from chronic niceness, and that that can create conflict. So I can define, so the way I, def so in the work that I've done, what I've done is I've broken down how is confrontation different from conflict. And actually, if you look at, I've looked at Webster's dictionary, I've looked at Fondala's dictionary, the, the Dutch dictionary, I'm sure in other dictionaries, you'll see that the, the etymology of the words are very different. The etymology of the word conflict is all about attack. Uh, to, 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 it's, there's a lot of violence and aggression in it. But 
the word con to confront simply says to cause to meet, to bring face to face. That's really what the word is. And for me, that's the essence of the work. To cause to meet, to bring face to face, even in challenge, is an act of vulnerability with front open, like con being the Latin word for with front open. So in a sense, even the etymology of the, of the words, that they are different. And then I would say that um, conflict is really any encounter that causes breakdown of relationship, the disempowerment of another, um, and, and causes separation. And being nice can do that. So this is my definition of conflict and confrontation. It also sounds like to you, it's the quality of hyper self-sacrifice in a way is, is a disempowerment of self as well. Yeah, it's a disempowerment of self, and it's also a disempowerment of the integrity of the relationship. Um, so, you know, being nice, how it can cause conflict is when you say yes, when you should say no, or when you say no, when you should say yes, or when you say nothing, when an injustice is happening, you know, in all the ways that we acquiesce and that we think we're being nice, we think that we've been taught that that's actually a noble thing to do, and not realizing that it's eating away at the integrity of the relationship. And it's certainly not serving the integrity of the dialogue that you're in. So in a sense, there, the, the, that's another way of looking at conflict. And the confrontation is, I would say, any encounter that brings individuals closer together, deepens relationship, and empowers everyone involved. And sometimes being nice can do that. Or I would say not nice, but kind. So that I, I have a delineation between kind and nice. And uh, But in, in essence, the the most effective way to create um, lasting transformation in a relationship or in a work culture or in a society is to have the courage and the skills to have the difficult conversations in a way that is respectful, in a way that is able to meet the other where they are with that proper amount of assertive receptivity and receptive assertiveness where you, and the whole training of respectful confrontation is it's based on martial arts practice where you train yourself to stay regulated um, so that you're not in a reactive state to truly know how to connect and what true engagement is, what true presence is, what true engagement is, um, to really understand how you're using your words, to use them with, with the proper focus and force, and then to be in the dance of how much assertiveness do I need, need to lean in to have this conversation and, and the, the, the appropriate amount of flexibility to deal with another person's reactivity and give them the time to settle into this conversation. I want to talk about polarities and polarization a little bit. So because you talk about balancing polarities and, and this is particularly for anyone moving in, in the realm of leadership development or spiritual development, we often talk about polarities they, because they're emergent in, in our experience. They're, they frequently are arising. Before we talk about that, I want to talk about polarization like that's a word that's top of mind for a lot of people it's something that we are seeing very vividly in the world right now uh warring tribes um identity politics um at the political level at the social level where is this growing from why why do you think we're seeing maybe more polarization even to your point as we become increasingly intelligent more accessible to great traditions and wisdom insights and modern psychology about how we mitigate. Why is there so much polarization right now? 
Um, if you have 14 hours, I can elaborate on that. And <laughs> the, give me the, and, give me the yeah. four minute version. And you know that this, uh, this is, this is what I'm writing about in my new book, Fear Civility. This is exactly what I'm writing about. What are the causes of that? I think it's important always to look at what the causes are. And, and for me, it has to do with the root cause of so much that so much is changing. And the, and, and at that old systems are crumbling and new systems are emerging. And that is just basic um, anxiety management, that basically human beings are, are, do anything to uh, uh, stay away from change and transition. And in essence, I think that is what's the number one cause is that we're in such a heightened state of anxiety because of all the uncertainty that's been happening in the last 50 years, certainly the last you know, 15, 20 years, and certainly with the, with the global pandemic and, and, and all and, and things that are emerging that we all have our different responses to that. Uh, we, and if we're, and so a lot of the work is about understanding nervous system regulation, because when we're in a, a heightened state of feeling uh, like everything is changing, we are, our systems are dysregulated and we fall into the typical fight, flight, freeze responses. So most people are falling into a fight response where they're fighting the system. Um, other people are in a flight response where the, the pain of change is too much. They're fleeing back to the 1950s or another time when they felt more secure. And other people are in a freeze response where they know things are bad. They know that they should be doing something, but they're just sticking their head in the sand because they're afraid that they might lose whatever they have. All of that is just accelerating. It becomes a cycle. And that heightened level of anxiety is simply putting us in a situation where we hold on to the most familiar thing. And I think that is the root cause of the issue right now is that, and that all of the theories we have, intellectual theories, sociolo sociological theories, all the research we're doing is not going to really have any benefit if we first don't address two fundamental things that we are all in a state of some level of trauma, either personally, culturally, or generationally, and that our hearts have shut down because of that. That when you're in a trauma state, your heart can't be open. You're basically just trying to survive and not, and not be annihilated. And many of us are in a state that we feel that it's, with, because we're not aware that any person or situation that seems different is a threat to our very existence. So that is the root cause of why we have an acceleration of polarization at the moment. And I agree with you. I think when things get uncertain, it's not easy for people to embrace that uncertainty. It's not a skill and a competency that's entrenched in our culture, particularly I'll speak of the West where certainty and science and, you know, knowing assuredness is highly prized. Um, it's how we define our culture. It's, it's performant. And to be in a state of uncertainty, to embrace insecurity, to embrace the unknown is just not a skill that we teach um, or practice. I think that, that we are in a period of deep uncertainty. I think the pandemic made it very clear that we're just not as equipped as we could be. To, to deal with the tenuousness of being of this world. Uh, and it is tenuous. And so it requires a certain kind of craftiness and uh, 
gentleness of spirit, openness of spirit to show up to those experiences. Yeah, it, uh, and we don't, and like you said, we 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 don't have those skills, and that and that what it does is it puts us in a very every person for themselves kind of mentality, and uh, and where civility just gets sacrificed. It's like I don't have time for civility, and and yet with this idea of fear civility, that is the for me that is the solution, is that we 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 need to fiercely engage with each other. That same thing of, that I was saying about um respectful confrontation we have to lean in and have the difficult conversations uh we have to be able to dialogue we have to be able to to engage we have to see you know it's it's a, you know so many communities are it's so easy to say we're all one right it's a, they hear like that's every other sentence we're all one global community we're all one you know that we're all you know the, the universal principles um love love you know it's all love and all of that and that's that's that may be true on some level yet uh even in those communities we're not trained to then go back into the world and actually live it and in the messiness mm. yeah it's a practice more than an idea well it's so when we talk about the oneness of all things or the unity of all things we're describing an ontological reality right we're describing a reality of being in the world. How do you do that? <laughs> What's the doing part of connecting to that ontological reality? Because when anything, when everything inside of you is in a state of conflict, when uh, you're apt to reactivity, you can think whatever you want to think about the oneness of things. Your system, in a way, you're hardwiring your system to show up in a state of agitation. You know, politicians talk this way after you know messy campaigns and. Just you know, people saying, you know, negativism, a culture of negativism, they'll be like, let's, we have to come together now after we've yeah. <laughs> poo pooed on each other for the last eight yeah. months. Now is the time to come together. Because yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've won. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Yeah. So I, I'm right. And so now oneness is right. I know it's it's an entire method and a process. And, and I'm, I'm happy that you brought a seven day journey into the huddle experience to start teasing out that process, but maybe just highlight a few really salient points about how one shows up to a confrontation in a way that's respectful. Well, I would say so there's, there's some of the things I would say is that um, it's not the what, but the how. So you learn a lot of communication models about what the proper wording is, or, or we see why are we not solving any of our world problems is because we're caught up in the facts and the data. And if the facts and the data were going to solve our would be enough to solve our problems, we would have solved them already. We have enough facts and data. What we're not uh, doing is approaching it from the heart. You know, that's what I would say, from a place of curiosity and compassion. So that's I think that's really it, and that's the essence, is to what's what's you know to make curiosity and compassion sexy. Basically, that's it. From a martial arts perspective, uh, what is the embodiment of um, curiosity and compassion? And the idea is with the, it's not the what, but the how is um, in a confrontation, accepting that no one wants to have those conversations, that uh, when you're having that, you're not judging or criticizing or accusing, you know, you're not, that causes harm. All you're doing is helping someone see their behavior as you have, are you are reflecting it, help them to see it, letting them know the effect it's having on you so that they understand the consequences 
and appeal to their heart to say, you know, usually at that point, if they really care about the relationship and if it was important to them that there's a deepening of relationship, they will think about modifying their behavior. So an, an important thing with respectful confrontation is you can't change people, but you can influence behavior. People don't change, they transform. It's violent to ask someone to change. You know, it's like basically saying stop being a racist or, or th things like that. Um, th that's not going to happen. You know, even if you want that to happen, it might, and it should happen. And it's not, again, it's not about the what, it's about the how. Because for me, asking someone to change is like saying going from a person to a tree. Change means you become something that you're no longer are and you become something else. And people don't change, they just transform. So you can invite someone into a transformational process because what transforms are your viewpoints, habits, and patterns. So if, I, if, I'm, if we're in a work situation and your behavior is causing others, if you're a bully or if you're, uh, you can't say to someone, stop being a bully, but you can ask them to look at their own viewpoints, habits, and patterns and over time, invite them into the process of transforming. And that is the, that is what creates lasting change. I can imagine the hard part. I mean, you say the word like bully or someone who's extremely assertive to the point of aggressive. The quality of inviting them to see themselves, I would assume, is more difficult under those circumstances. So there's, there's a, they're more opaque. Let's let's maybe think of that response as a kind of defensive or a way of meeting the world that is they've found to be adaptive for them, right? So I feel right. I need to be aggressive because I'm concealing something in me that's uncomfortable. This is the only way that I can interact with the world. And and some defenses are that th are thicker than others. How do you deal with those circumstances where the quality of the person is showing up and those qualities are tend to lean more on the opaque, like the walls are thick, you know, it's like yeah. a bit like Fort Knox. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, I'll give you the cute answer carefully, carefully. <laughs> no, and, and that's, and that's the practice. So it's a, it's a practice. It's like, like from martial arts, it's like, how do you approach that? You know, so there's, there's, there's a couple of things I can say about that is, uh, I wouldn't say like in a confrontation, Hey, you're a bully and you should stop. Right. That's telling that's, that's, that's just harm. That's just going to exacerbate the problem. But you can say, I'm, um, what I've been noticing is in the last few meetings that uh, when someone starts talking, you cut them off. Do you recognize you do that? Yes. Well, why? Right? And, and, and they might give an answer and they might say, well, because that's just the way I was taught to do it. And because I think everyone is stupid and I, and I don't have patience and time for them. Okay, well, then let me tell the effect it's having on us as a team. And then you say the effect. And then, and then, and then that gives them a chance to, to drop in a bit more. And then you, then you share. So, so can you see that maybe we can do it a different way? Would you be open to doing it a different way? Cause this is what I would need in this situation. Now, what do you need in this situation? And that's where new solutions can emerge. When you can get a person malleable enough and receptive enough to that point where you put your needs on the table, they put their needs on the table. You're in a collaboration. You're in a negotiation. That's where creative emergence can happen. It's in that moment that solutions that haven't existed yet suddenly emerge. And to speak to your point, Mark, I think that's an important one is 
one of the subtitles of respectful confrontation is respectful confrontation. It's never about the dishes. And what I mean by that is that so many of us want to do problem solving. We, again, I, I'm going to go back to this thing of if, if you're just dealing with procedurally, then in essence, you're, you're, you may put a bandaid on the problem, but you're not getting to the root cause of the problem, which is speaking to what you're saying, because maybe that person reveals, well, you know, uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm intimidated by everyone in the room because they have more degrees than I do. So therefore, this is my way of feeling like I have some sense of power. So that's, and that is beautiful, right? And that's where um, healing happens. That's where transformation happens. That's where deepening of relationship happens, where you establish more safety and trust. Are there times in a confrontation where it's time to walk away? And how do you know that? Um, yes. And I always say to people that some of the most beautiful ways to end a relationship is from a respectful confrontation. Because basically, at that moment, you just both come to the conclusion that you're not going to be able to satisfy each other's needs. So it can be done very amicably. Um, and, and I don't believe tr relationships end. I just believe relationships transform. So, you know, you may not be married anymore, but you're, you know, you're still at some level of relationship, whatever that is. Yes, because the essence of the work is getting to the truth of issues, right. uh, tracing things to its root cause. Respectful disagreement, respectful distance, possibly. Yeah, we can separate respectfully. And, you know, and I'm, I'm working with, with companies now that are doing a lot of reorgs and, uh, and, they're and they're having to go through the very uncomfortable, messy process of letting people go who have been there for 25 years because they will not shift into the new value system that the company is trying to move into. And, um, and, I'm coaching them to do that in a way where the person, of course, is upset and there's a lot of pain, but understands they have a choice. They had a choice. They were given a lot of space to step into to, to that. They were given a lot of support. And that's the thing is we hold each other accountable. So I've given you every chance. So how do you know when you have to walk away? It has also to do with your own level of safety. If you're If you're in a conversation, that's the number one thing, because it's a very uncomfortable process, respectful confrontation, having difficult conversations. That's why we avoid it. And that is one of the reasons why we have arguments and fights. One person in a training of mine said, oh, I get it. I'd rather suffer and stay in a relationship than be uncomfortable and have the important conversations. Mm. It's a bizarre paradox, in a sense. And so uh, to, to the work is about understanding also a deeper level of nervous system regulation, where you begin to feel in your body the difference between uncomfortable and unsafe. Because for people who, who are suffering from trauma or chronic um, stress, which is basically everyone on this planet at the moment, um, when, the, when the nervous system is in that chronic state, it can't tell the difference between unsafe and uncomfortable. And oftentimes why we get into arguments and fights is because we're simply in an uncomfortable position, but the nervous system is thinking hungry tiger, we're about to be annihilated. And we go into those re reactive responses. So a large component of the work is learning how to stay regulated, understanding personal space and your own level of safety. 
learning how to lean into someone else's space without it being aggressive, but assertive, and the flexibility of being able to dance um, with someone else's reactivity. What's the sum total effect of engaging in a respectful confrontation? What, what is transformed when one walks the respectful path? The relationship transformed. There's a deepening of relationship. There's a, there's a deepening of creating a, a culture of safety and trust um, where you're no longer, it's no longer just procedural. So I was doing a lot of work in customer service, also in healthcare, and, uh, and where it's about taking care of people. And, and the question always is, what are the needs that you're taking care of? Are you taking care of just the procedural things, just in terms of uh, the basic um, systems that need to be dealt with? Or are you dealing with the emotional needs and the, and, and the, and the more personal needs? And the work is to understand that both are just as important. And that creates a different kind of a culture. So the, the walking the respectful path, as you say, is um, well, creating a culture of mutual empowerment. I would think that as a leader, you would have to have an inordinate amount of discipline because the fallback, or let's say the typical response is, there's a hierarchy here, um, I'm in a position of power, with that comes a certain rightness, which in of itself creates tons of static if you're trying to figure out how to respectfully deal with confrontation because you can go just into that default mode, right? Yeah. I would think it would take an inordinate amount of self-discipline and self-awareness on leaders who show up and set all of that aside in service to the relationship. Well, I think that's where a lot of the trainings in the trainings, a lot of time is spent helping the participants to feel an embodied experience of the power and vulnerability. So that's one of my fundamental beliefs. It's in your vulnerability that your true power is revealed. And when your true power is revealed, then you create an environment where others can allow their true power to be revealed through the unraveling of their own um, reactivity and the things that hold them back and, and, and blocks. So in a sense, you're creating an environment of safety and trust where vulnerability is an empowered thing. So with leaders, and I think that's been trending now for more than 10 years where I'm around the world, where in leadership trainings, where leaders are expected to train more from a place of, to, to lead more from a place of transparency and vulnerability. Because it, it, what it does is it, 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 there's a return on investment because basically you're creating an environment where each person working and each employee can step into their own personal leadership, where there's more buy-in. The basis of that is safety and trust. And it's not about being nice, right? So the idea is, you know, you know, that it takes a tremendous discipline to be vulnerable and, and um, it doesn't mean you're a pushover. That still means you're holding others accountable. That still means you're being fierce in making sure that everyone is in alignment with the core values of the organization. So there is a level of fierceness. There's a level of setting boundaries, clear boundaries. So the same effective work is just done from a place of um, empowerment and mm. inviting people into, into the discussion. Because it's really easy to just tell, you know, right? The, the, I call it the 20th, 20th century uh, leadership, which was hierarchical. It's basically do what I tell you to do. If you don't, you're fired. Right. It's easy. You get a lot done. It's efficient. There's still some of that in the 21st century. <laughs> but it's important to contrast the difference. 
And one of the things you've said yeah. actually, you know, raised just an obvious thought as a leader, when you assume that kind of power, the effect is of the disempowerment of others is you burden yourself with a certain quality of certain kind of responsibility as well. You know, as you deprive yeah. others of becoming leaders in their own right and being empowered, you shoulder yourself, you burden yourself with an overwhelming amount. And that, of course, just perpetuates a cycle of, you know, discontent, potential aggressiveness, yeah. resentment. Uh, so there's a side effect of taking on that kind of power and imposing that power on people. You mentioned um, your work in healthcare. And as you know, we work a lot in that space in organizational transformation and rethinking the healthcare experience. Uh, confrontation in healthcare is a big topic. Um, it's, it's not uncommon because we're dealing often with life and death circumstances, people suffering. And certainly where there's more suffering, there tends to be more potential conflict. Well, I mean, first, let's talk about some of the potential confrontations that arise in healthcare. Like, what do you see? You, you, you mentioned people who provide care or who are in a caring kind of role. What kinds of confrontations do we see arise in healthcare? Well, you mean conflicts. Conflicts. Oh, yeah. 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 It might be a little bit of a, a long path to get to the answer, but um, when I am training leaders as a, as a coach, I, 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 I'll ask them, do you see yourself more as a, in your leadership style as an ER doctor or a family practitioner? And they're like, what do you mean by that? I said, well, you know, an ER doctor, basically it's like, I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm there, anybody that comes, any body that comes onto my table, I'm just going to take care of. I don't have time to build a relationship with that body. I, I just basically have to pull the bullets out of it. And anyone around me is basically, I need that blood now and I don't have time to respectfully, right? So, and, and I'm really good at that. I can get, I can save a lot of lives in, in one day. And there's a certain reward in that. And it's a style, it's a choice. Whereas you have other leaders who are more family practitioner, where family practitioner builds relationships with their um, with their patients or the people who, who who come and see them, and they're more involved with their long term healthcare, right? Their long long term care. That's another style of of leadership, and I think those two tensions are always going to be in healthcare as well. Is there's a mentality of we just got to keep people well, and at any cost. And it doesn't necessarily mean we have to build relationship with those people. And I think that causes conflict, that causes um, isolation and disempowerment um, and dis disenfranchising of people, both the people who are being served and the people who are serving. And at the same disconnect that we talked about in the beginning is that these are people who were wired to be caregivers, who were who wired to take care of others. But oftentimes that is just focused to, that's outward focused. And there's no time considered to first doing the same for themselves. And second, doing it with their colleagues. It's just not part of the system to actually take care of each other. Uh, and I hear that a lot. And I think, and I think that, that in, is the basis of what ca can cause conflict. And the conflict, so when we look at it, the different levels of aggression and respectful confrontation, it's not just we, like we, um, where someone comes at you uh, who wants to beat on you or something like that. There's low grades of aggression, which is what we call passive aggressive or different kinds of aggression, which where today it may not have a big impact, but after three, four, 10 years, 
the accumulated effect can be just as uh, damaging as high-grade aggression. So I think what's, what you're seeing is that in the healthcare system is that there's an enormous amount of low-grade aggression towards oneself and towards one's colleagues that just eat away at the integrity of the relationships and just causes burnout. I would, I would add also that we see these arise even in often in family dynamics, uh, tensions and yeah. conflicts between family members around things like uh, making critical choices, decisions to follow through on treatment or not, um, tensions that arise between caregivers and their loved ones around a change in a relationship because of an illness, sexual relationship, uh, long-term goals. Those also raise all kinds of potential points of conflict and tension. I mean, obviously, you could. The higher the stakes, the more the volume gets turned up. Uh, I would assume. I would assume there's a, a kind of yes. causal relationship, or at least a correlation between those two things. And in healthcare, for a lot of people, it feels like the stakes are very high. Right? Um, you show up. You're. You're. Let's say someone who has been diagnosed with a health problem. You show up to a hospital. No one seems to have time for you. To your point, everyone's an ER doctor. It's it's one procedure after another. You're just feeling extremely vulnerable and it seems like no one is able to show up for you. Um, or or the, all, the, the opposite is true as well. You, you're in a loving, caring relationship with someone, but maybe you struggle on the communication front. Someone gets sick and all of a sudden your communication is even more exacerbated like the, you know the kind of quote unquote the negative end of that conversation is even more yeah. exacerbated now now there's more conflict yeah. yeah i think the key to that is understanding is is focusing on the needs and i would say that in a situation if you're taking care of someone who is dying for instance it's basically just constantly asking the question what do you need right now what do you need right now I need to make sure that it's clear that uh, I'm going to get on my medicine. So it's more procedural, right? That's what you need right now. Okay. So you need more from that aspect that, that your medicine's taken care of. The doctors are all lined up and all of that. Great. In 20 minutes, it can be, what do you need right now? I just need a hug. I just need you to tell me everything's going to be okay. Even if it's not. All right. I can do that. And that's, I think what a care, someone who's providing care needs to be constantly thinking about. When my, um, if I may share, when my mom was passing, she was uh, in the ICU and my sister and I were a great team. She, my sister is more wired. She's more, she's a lawyer. She was a lawyer. Now she's a judge. So she's more the procedural. She was great with the doctors, with all of that. I'm more the spiritual one, more the caregiver. I took care of my mom's emotional needs and made sure the space that there was music and all of those kind of things. And my sister dealt with all that. And we were a great team. Because uh, we identified that uh, we were we were able to satisfy both, I would say. Yeah, I have a very similar dynamic with my brothers. We, when we've been in care situations, we draw on each other's strengths and complement those strengths. That creates a kind of unique balance, you know, knowing your strengths and showing up with those strengths and honoring the strengths of someone else in a way I is is a kind of respectful confrontation. Uh, it creates its own kind of harmony and balance in a in a relationship not forcing someone to change. Oh, I wish you were more emotionally available for mom like I am. Well, the retort exactly. to that is, I wish you were more procedural and pragmatic the way I yeah. am. Right. Whereas the alternative is, well, these are really complementary skills that we can bring to support mom. 
And that's really what a presentation does is that you can speak that in a respectful way and say, you know, set boundaries. I, this is all I can do. And, and, and this, and, and if you, and, but I need you to do more. All right, well then let's discuss it. I'm just letting you know what I can do. And I'd be open to hear, maybe I can lean in a bit more, but I have to also, I think people who are taking care of people also take care of themselves. And that, and I think what you're saying to that as well is that the team who's taking care of someone, that there is clear communication there and support for one another. We want to keep the caregivers also vital and, and, and present. We don't, you know, that, you know, the tendency is to forget that and we burn ourselves out. We deplete ourselves. And what are we doing to rejuvenate? And that can be for caregiving. That's even in organizations, the kind of leadership you were saying is that the way the old fashioned, the 20th century way or what we're still seeing, um, it's not sustainable. It, and, and it's becoming less sustainable. You know, people are changing, the circumstances are changing, the challenges are getting more extreme. And what are we doing as individuals, as a family unit, as an organization to upgrade our resilience skills, right? Because it's not going to get any easier. The volatility is going to be there. The polarization is going to be there. The uncertainty is going to be there. The level of anxiety is going to increase. The resources are going to be more challenging. So I say often, that what, a, what all organizations need to do now is devote time and energy now into becoming more resilient, that each individual is more resilient, the organization itself, the systems that connect the, the people need to be more resilient to meet the needs. And those are the organizations that are not only going to survive, but they're going to thrive. Yeah. And I, and I like at least the emerging understanding of resilience, not as a knock me down, I'll get back up, but a, a quality of being able to bounce forward. It's, it's a highly adaptive skill resilience. It's our ability to, um, thoughtfully, intelligently, compassionately adapt to a situation and move forward through that situation. It's not that I think people sometimes have the image of resilience as that blow up clown that you would hit and it would fall back and it would come back up. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. you just keep hitting me. I'll just keep coming back up. I'm very resilient. Um, well, maybe not in that circumstance. That's just you're really just cyclical. You're just stuck in a pattern um, that's different than resilience. That's something else. I'm glad you said that because resilience is not enduring. It's not suffering. That's like, again, an old view of that. You know, in the work that I do with respectful confrontation, we have a few definitions for resilience. One is the capacity to cultivate presence, awareness, balance, and flow so that you can dance with challenges with ease, in a sense. And that what, uh, what you cultivate with that is uh, when you, are, you, you know that you are moving through the world in a resilient way with what I call resilient power, when you have physical vitality, emotional stability, mental clarity, and spiritual grounding. And those are qualities you can develop. And as you do that, that is what resilience is. Keep on exploring. Joe invites you to go on a journey into how to feel empowered through difficult conversations.